Let's answer the first question first. I'm going to tell you at least why Aristotle's successors very much embraced prior analytics, syllogisms, and deductive reasoning above all else, and why they refer to it as the psalm of truth. In summary, I'm going to show you how Aristotle's organon and its underlying use of deductive syllogisms is associated with three big ideas. First, the axiomatic method in mathematics, and this is the idea of formally proving theorems uh, or formulas, and it's really how all mathematics is done. Second, we've got the scientific method, and this is the idea of formulating a hypothesis, then conducting an experiment to test the hypothesis, and then revising either the experiment or the hypothesis until the original hypothesis is either proved or disproved. And third, we have the invention of the digital programmable computer, which powers everything that you can think of these days, from the internet to databases to smartphones, and eventually it's just going to automate everything we can think of. In other words, most everything we associate with modernity can be linked back to Aristotle's simple syllogism. So in this part of the podcast, we're going to explore these three big ideas in terms of how they relate back to analytics. Now, to be clear, Aristotle himself was not the underlying driver of deductive analytic thinking, and he probably gets far more credit than he deserves. But the reason why he does get so much credit has a lot to do with two main reasons. First and foremost, Aristotle's definition of the syllogism is so concise, precise, and generalized that when related concepts were invented, they're retroactively seen as being descended from prior analytics and the rest of the organon. Secondly, Aristotle's organon was written before Euclid's elements of geometry, and elements, as it is often referred to, is arguably the most important mathematics text ever offered, ever authored, because it's the first book to fully describe the axiomatic method for proving mathematical formulas. And because of the possibility that Euclid may have been informed by Aristotle, because Aristotle came before Euclid, many believe that's what happened. But in fact, Euclid took his ideas from another, um, from an earlier mathematician whose name was Eudoxus. And my point here, and a big point of this podcast, is that deductive analytical thinking is something that emerged from certain Western cultures, the Greeks in particular, and is not the result of some superhero genius like Aristotle. And in Greece, deductive thinking likely began to emerge around the 8th century BCE, when Phoenician traders, after establishing some level of trust and reciprocity, began extending credit plus interest to the Greek traders. And, And so transactional thinking began to take root. And I'm going to return to this thread concerning the Phoenicians and the transmission of interest later in this podcast. Now, the first Greeks to demonstrate applied deductive thinking are also remembered as the first known Greek mathematician and astronomer, and although I'm sure there were others before this person. And the person I'm speaking of, it was called, uh, his name was Talus. And Talus was born in 624 BCE in Miletus, which is in present-day Turkey. Now, the interesting thing about Talus is that he was not just gifted in mathematics, but he was also very much an opportunistic entrepreneur, and he applied deductive thinking to make money. And as the story goes, and there are many different versions of this story, one year Talus recognized that the pattern of weather was particularly favorable for olive trees. And so he knew that there would be a bumper crop year for for olives, 
and decided to take advantage of this. So he negotiated rental of all of the olive presses he could find. And because of his timing, he was able to get a huge early bird discount on these, these presses. So once the bumper crop arrived, he then rented those same olive presses out to the back out to the farmers, the ones that he had already rented, and uh, he rented them for a huge profit. Now, his apparent motivation in all of this wasn't just to become wealthy, which, of course, he did, but he wanted to show how philosophy was relevant because it could be used to make money. Now, in terms of mathematics, Talus is known for Talus's theorem, which basically states that if you draw a line across a circle's center so that a line segment is the width of the circle's diameter, and then you add another point to the circle so that all three line segments form a triangle, then the triangle will always be a right-angle triangle. Now, it's unclear if Talus actually created a proof of his own theorem, since we can only find subsequent reports from other Greeks who claim that he did. But if he did create a proof, it's likely that it would have been some kind of um, inductive visual proof using shapes put down on, on papyrus. So, for example, he might draw out a series of circles and then show with a series of triangles how they all fit into his theorem. And this style of proof um, continued on and can be can be traced all the way up till the Pythagorean school uh, later on during the 5th century BCE. Now, this Pythagorean school was still 100 years before Aristotle's time. Now, since the Pythagoreans were a turning point in Greek thinking, and in many regards laid down the foundation of later Greek thinkers like Plato and Aristotle, it's worth taking a, a couple minutes to explain their story. Now, Pythagoras himself is, of course, most famous for his formula, which allows us to calculate the, the hypotenuse or the long side of a, a right-angled triangle by taking the square by taking the square root of the sum of the squares of the two short sides. And it should be noted that Pythagoras was not the first person to devise this formula, as it was in use actually before, um, by, by the Babylonians at least, several hundred years before Pythagoras was even born. Now, most of what we know about Pythagoras himself, including him being the originator of the eponymous theorem, is probably apocryphal. It's probably made up. But it was believed that Pythagoras, if, he, if it was true, uh, what has been said about him, it was believed that Pythagoras was born in Samos, which is part of the, the Ionian Greece, um, which is present-day Turkey, and that he was the son of a wealthy jewel merchant. Now, Pythagoras apparently traveled around the Mediterranean and apparently learned mathematics from the Egyptians. He eventually settled in Croton, which is in present-day Italy, where he practiced mathematics and astronomy, and eventually gathered a group of followers that formed the basis of a school that he referred to as the semicircle. Now, the school eventually grew into what could be described as a, a religious commune or maybe even a cult. And the followers of Pythagoras, known as Pythagoreans, were sworn to secrecy and, um, and, and they underwent really long, lengthy um, initiation rites, which really mainly were about just sitting and studying in silence for, for very long periods of time, like years. Now, Pythagoras, he was very much a legendary figure, as I mentioned earlier, and, and you could almost compare him to, to prophets like, like Moses and, and, and Jesus, because he was, he was said to have been able to perform miracles like predicting earthquakes. 
So that's another reason why, you know, everything we know about him is, is kind of a bit sort of mysterious or apocryphal. But the Pythagoreans, um, which was, of course, the group that, that sort of formed around him, in many ways can be compared to the, the Indian Vedics, and in that they also embraced math, science, and mysticism as all being um, an integral part of their society. And also, like the Vedics, they, they developed this idea of reincarnation and also had women philosophers uh, similar to the female rishis among the Vedics, which, as I mentioned earlier, was exceedingly rare for this time. However, unlike the Vedics, the Pythagoreans were more secretive and did not openly compete with other groups for status. So in this regard, they were more like, uh, you could say, like the Freemasons, who we'll be talking about in part two of this episode, or the Rosicrucians. And this, in many ways, was uh, the undoing of the Pythagoreans. So to give you an example... The tyrant king Cylon of Croton attacked the Pythagoreans after he was refused membership to their secret society. So after that, they began to open up. But once they began to open up, they began to lose their identity and they lost their their group cohesion. So the Pythagoreans were also unique and they had essentially developed uh, an entire cult around mathematics that saw numbers as the most fundamental building block of the universe. And within the Pythagorean school, of, uh, was a philosopher by the name of Archytas. And while Archytas was well-versed well in geometry, he believed that formulas could and should only be proved uh, through arithmetic. However, Archytas himself never actually deductively proved anything using arithmetic. He just believed that that's what one ought to do. Instead, he created... Uh, these things called, which he called constructions, which were essentially just visual representations of mathematical concepts, kind of like what I was telling you about with Talus um, and his triangle and circuit, circle and triangle earlier. So, for example, with Archytas, he was interested in a famous puzzle known as doubling the cube, or it was also called the Delian problem. And you can you can look into it online. It's an interesting puzzle. And Archytas showed how the cube root of two could be truthfully calculated by demonstrating through this construction method, um, which basically involved taking a picture of a flattened three-dimensional cube. And so Archytas would essentially just sort of use that sort of flattened cube and kind of point to it and walk people through, um, you know, how he saw this, this relating to the cube root of two and then how he could calculate that number. So that's how he basically proved things. But he did believe in this idea of, of having axioms based on arithmetic. Now, later, the philosopher Eudoxus of Canidus, who uh, was not a Pythagorean, he studied at Plato's Academy during the 5th and 4th century BCE, uh, but was a fan of Archytas' work. He wanted to take Archytas' approach of proving geometrical theorems uh, using arith arithmetic axioms. So he actually wanted to do what Archytas was talking about. Um, but Eudoxus ran into a problem uh, with what are known as irrational numbers. And the problem is that irrational numbers, like the square root of 2, for example, you can't really use arithmetic to express it in. You can't, um, you can't use fractions or anything like that. Now, the Pythagoreans were well aware of this problem, but they never devised a solution. And, um, and it's because of this particular problem that irrational uh, with irrational numbers that many scholars will point to um, 
Pythagoras' theorem, which of course involves taking the square root of a number, as the sort of inflection point uh, where the Greeks jumped from arithmetic into geometry. So to get around this, the square root of two problem, this irrational numbers problem, Eudoxus realized it was necessary to have higher order axioms or different axioms than, than just arithmetic. So for example, um, to, so basically what, what Eudoxus felt was that they needed other axioms to essentially prove out uh, formulas so that they didn't have to rely on arithmetic. So for example, the number pi, which is expressed as, you know, as the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter, you could consider that, that, that formula or that, that um, definition of pi to be axiomatic. And then you can take that uh, definition of pi and make it into its own sort of mathematical building block. So then we can develop formulas like pi r squared, which gives us the area of a circle without having to resort to arithmetic uh, in order to prove the correctness. So we can merely rely on the definition of pi and treat pi just as fundamental as addition is as multiplication. And so Eudoxus began defining new axioms and then showing through mathematical deduction that a geometric formula could be proved using these geometry axioms. But Eudoxus does not really get the credit he deserves for pivoting mathematics in this direction. The credit really goes to Euclid. And Euclid, of course, wrote uh, Elements of Geometry, or just Elements as it's known for short. And it's in Elements that Euclid describes the same approach to geometry that Eudoxus was already describing in his own words. But Euclid formalizes this, this process, and he describes the way he formulate, sorry, the way he um, formalizes it is he describes a method that begins with what he called her postulates. And these are essentially the formulas that you want to prove. And then he goes on to say that the mathematician or the person proving the formula draws from what he called common notions uh, to complete the, pro the proof. So common notion is essentially just like an axiom. So in other words, Euclid just took Eudoxus's concept of, of formulas based on higher order axioms and extended this thinking into a, form, into a formal method that we now refer to as the axiomatic method. In an application, it should also be pointed out that Euclid was the first person to provide a formal proof of Pythagoras' theorem. But long before Euclid did this, uh, Aristotle was already aware of Eudoxus' techniques because Eudoxus was a prominent philosopher at Plato's Academy at the same time as Aristotle. And may, he may have even taught Aristotle. And so we can see Eudoxus' influence on Aristotle by reading Aristotle's Categories, which, as you may recall, was the first book of the Organon. So to support my point, I'm just going to read to you from Categories, uh, Book 3, Chapter 12, Paragraph 3. And Aristotle writes, quote, In the third place, the term prior is used with reference to any order, as in the case of science and of oratory. For in sciences which use demonstration, there is that which is prior and that which is posterior in order. In geometry, the elements are prior to the propositions. In reading and writing, the letters of the alphabet are prior to the syllables. Similarly, in the case of speeches, the exordium is prior in order to the narrative. End of quote. So again, to repeat the key phrase here, Aristotle writes that, quote, In geometry, the elements are prior to the propositions. End quote. 
And so while Euclid, and to a lesser extent, Eudoxus are credited as having developed the axiomatic method, it was generally understood by philosophers to actually be a special case of Aristotle's syllogism. So to clarify my point, while it's likely true that Eudoxus had an influence on Aristotle, Aristotle's main line of thinking was in opposition to the sophists who came from a legal tradition. And so if there's anything to be learned from this, it's that Aristotle at some level recognized the similarity between legal rhetoric and mathematics. Regardless, as a result of this relationship between logic and mathematics, Western philosophers would see these concepts as deeply intertwined in an almost religious sort of way. Now let's compare this axiomatic to method to what was going on in, in China and India. Now in China, there was no codified deductive logic beyond what may have dribbled through the Tibetan Buddhists after the 6th century CE. So Chinese mathematicians were not in the habit of formally proving theorems. To give you an idea of the differences between Chinese and European mathematics, I'm going to read you some passages from a book called The East-West Dichotomy by Thorsten Patberg, which was published in 2009. And he writes, quote, Chinese written language enabled Chinese mathematicians to express themselves with a, with a conciseness that is almost impossible to attain in highly inflected natural languages using an alphabet such as prevailed in Europe. Thus, Chinese were able to deal with problems which in the West could not be ta tackled until a suitable mathematical symbolism had been developed. At the same time, this meant that the Chinese mathematicians never had the incentive to develop a fully symbolic algebraic notation, since the need for one was never as acutely felt as in Europe. End quote. Now, the book goes on to include this other passage, which is more in line with, with what I have been arguing throughout my podcast. And he writes, quote, most sinologists and universal historians today more or less agree that before Zhu Guangxi, who lived from 1562 to 1633, published his translation of the first six books of Euclid's Elements in Geometry in 1607, this kind of Greek Hellenistic analytic deductive driven mathematics and axiomatic proof findings had been systematically unknown to Asia. Indeed, it took China's mathematicians roughly 250 years until 1851, Alexander Wiley and Li Shanlan published the second half of the translation of Euclid's Elements of Geometry to realize the practicability of axioms at all, end quote. Now, Zhu Guangxi was an imperial scholar and mathematician, and it was Zhu Guangxi that met with the Italian Jesuits, Matteo Ricci and Sabatino uh, di Ur Ursus in the, in the early 17th century and work with them to translate European texts into Chinese. And so I want to read to you another quote um, from the East-West Dichotomy. And they write, Pat Berg writes, quote, Zhu Guangxi made some genuine attempts to integrate Western and Chinese mathematics, but ended up being very pragmatic about it. If a Chinese equation led to the same result of Western mathematics did, it was there to stay. If not, it was to abandon, end quote. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, and to be fair to China, they developed some formulas like Pascal's triangle hundreds of years before European mathem mathematicians had done the same. But it is hard to ignore the impact of the absence of the axioma axiomatic method um, on Chinese mathematics. And I'll argue that this is one of the most striking differences between how Europe and China evolved 
culturally. Now, as for Indian, as for Indian mathematics, there was not the same tradition of creating formal proofs. However, there was a strong debating culture within India, as I remarked earlier in this podcast. And they too, it should be noted, arrived at Pascal's triangle, actually even before the Chinese did. And so as, as, as I've argued throughout this podcast, democratic debate or argument, if you prefer, is one of the key underlying drivers of analytics. So even if you're not arguing formally through axioms and proofs, you can still argue and attack opponent's formula. Um, you can attack an opponent's formula and often achieve the same results. So a good example of this, this dynamic is in the book, The Man Who Knew Infinity, which was turned into that movie with Deb Patel and Jeremy Irons. Now, the movie is based on a true story about Ramanujan, who was a, math- a mathematic prodigy uh, from India, and he gets accepted into Cambridge to study with uh, Hardy, who is a peer of, of Bertrand Russell. And a lot of the tension in this movie comes from the fact that Ramanujan's theorems were never uh, proved when he came up with them. And so Ramanujan eventually learns to do this, which ultimately results in him proving his own theorems, which in the end gives him the respect of the other professors, in spite of their semi-racist posture throughout the entire movie. And so that's the story of how logic and the axiomatic have been indispensable for mathematicians. So now moving on to the second big question, how does analytics and logic link back to science and more specifically the scientific method? Now, in general, Euclid's elements of geometry had a massive influence on mathematics, astronomy, geography, and architecture since at least the 8th century CE in both the Arab world and Europe. And the idea of there being a relationship between mathematics and astronomy has been around even way before even the Pythagoreans. In fact, actually, that's kind of where we get math from. Astronomy was always actually just seen as one and the same as mathematics for a very long period of time. But a major turning point for science and what set off the scientific revolution was arguably the 16th century astronomer Johannes Kepler. Now, Kepler's big idea was to compare empirical data to mathematically predicted observations and then discover anomalies between those between the what was predicted and what was observed, and then go back and, and um, uh, revise the mathematics. So, for example, Kepler may have hypothesized that the, the planet's orbit shape is a circle. I mean, he didn't in reality. I'm just, this is an example. So let's say he hypothesized that the planet's orbit was in the shape of a circle. And from there, he would make a prediction as to where the planet will be over the next several weeks. And then he would take those observations which don't fit the equations. And then he would go back and he would fix the equations so they would fit the new observations. And then this, of course, would in turn... Um, allow him to make new predictions for which he would then go and take more observations and so on. So this is the approach um, that really puts science and mathematics on equal footing. This is, in 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 essence, the scientific method uh, before it was even described. But in terms of relating um, the scientific method back to uh, deductive analytical logic, how do we do this? Well, again, we come back to Aristotle, who, as you may recall from earlier in this podcast, had described a method of kind of iterating between a definition and and uh, what he called a demonstration as a way of interrogating the true nature of reality. That said, Aristotle and most Greeks tended not to conduct experiments or even weigh or measure things. 
So Aristotle's notion of demonstration isn't quite the same as experimentation. The first person to really codify the scientific method was the 17th century English philosopher and scientist Francis Bacon in his book Nova Organum. Now, interestingly, he argues against the reliance on deductive analytical thinking in favor of inductive reasoning in the sense that scientists should really just be conducting experiments in order to probe the the world as opposed to just relying on, you know, having debates and arguments ad nauseum without actually like walking outside your house and looking outside at nature. So that's why uh, the, the title of this book, Nova Organum, um, was essentially mocking um, or Aristotle's organon, sort of a play on that word. Uh, and of course, um, I should remind you that Aristotle himself, and this is the irony, was an empiricist. So uh, Francis Bacon is really kind of using Aristotle as a bit of a straw man here. And uh, so he's kind of attacking Aristotle this, this, you know, throughout this book in a way. But of course, Aristotle would have agreed with him. Um, so this is one of the great ironies of, of, of history. Anyway, the scientific method, as Bacon saw it, would be further refined in the early 19th century by the English philosopher and scientist uh, William Waywell. Now, Waywell also coined the word scientist, which, of course, comes from the word science, which in turn comes from the Latin word sire, which means uh, know, as in to know how nature works. But both Bacon and Waywell's formulation of the scientific method presented science as a primarily uh, inductive exercise and didn't really show how deduction fits in. So in other words, Bacon and Waywell described um, what Bacon and Waywell described didn't really do the best job of explaining what Johannes Kepler and other scientists were actually doing. So it wouldn't be until the late 19th century that the American um, scientist and logician Charles Sanders Peirce demonstrated that the scientific method could be most concisely and precisely defined in terms of formal logic and actually syllogisms. And not only that, but by carefully studying the properties of the syllogisms, Sanders stumbled onto identifying a hitherto unclassified form of thinking known as abduction. And this isn't to be confused with the same word for kidnapping somebody. Now, in Pierce's view, science involved three basic activities. First is coming up with a hypothesis, and that's what he called abduction. And second, there's predicting what should happen if the hypothesis comes true, and that is deduction. And then third is conducting experiments to test the hypothesis, which is is what Francis Bacon and, and William Waywell were already talking about. And this, of course, is a form of induction. Now, I want to take a moment to explain what abduction is, because not only is it something that Pierce defined here for the first time, but it also gives us some insight into our own minds and into artificial intelligence. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, there are basically two ways of thinking. There's deductive thinking, which is top-down, and um, inductive thinking, which is bottom-up, where you're looking at a whole bunch of um, le- you know, examples and labeled examples to see a pattern. But the third type of thinking, abduction, is more like uh, thinking through analogy. So it's not looking, it's not so much seeing a pattern and then and then calling that pattern out. It's more, 
you know, seeing how two concepts might be similar in a, in a, an abstract way. So if we look at computers, they're, they're actually at their most natural, uh, their most natural state, most happy place when they're doing everything deductively. However, modern machine learning systems actually work inductively by observing labeled examples and then inducing a pattern. Abduction, on the other hand, while it is technically a form of induction, because anything that's not deduction is induction, must be. Um, while it doesn't, it, it's not inductive. While it's technically inductive, there's no obvious steps that you can follow. There's, uh, unlike deduction and induction, there's no recipe or, or method to speak of. Um, but you know what? It's best if I use an example to show you how um, all of these things work together, and in particular how abduction works. So in this example, let's say scientists have concluded after an extensive survey and taking detailed measurements that no person can be taller than nine feet tall. Now from here, we can state our conclusion or our result as all persons are less than nine feet tall. Okay, so we're done the science. And then one day a body washes up on the shore and a person appears who is more than nine feet tall. And this, of course, appears to contradict our previous conclusion. So in our case, we might first abduce that the body is not human at all. And then the next step, we would go back and then we would apply deductive thinking to deduce if the body is human or not by performing a simple DNA test, because we can deduce um, a person's humanity um, through or whether they used to be human through a DNA test. And, um, and then the test itself, as we're conducting the test, is, is really uh, using the powers of induction to get that answer because we're taking uh, examples or samples of DNA from the blood, of course, or some, some tissue. Now, if the body turns out to test positive for human DNA, and then we were wrong about our initial hypothesis, this means that we're forced to abduce another hypothesis. So we may abduce that it is the process of decomposing in the water that led to the body to expand in length. And in this case, we can immediately deduce that this is true insofar that the body was floating in water. So we don't need to uh, test that out or run any experiments there. But what we do need to do is figure out to what extent can water stretch a body. So to get an idea of this, we would conduct experiment by simply taking other corpses and then letting them soak in water for a prolonged period of time to see if we can produce the same effect, which again is an experiment looking at examples and is hence a form of induction. So assuming, for example, that this does produce the body lengthening effect, then we can conclude that the body has been lengthened by floating in water. And so we have solved our mysteries. But in solving this mystery, we have in turn abduced a new rule and learned something new about corpses and water. And as far as you, as you can see, the hypotheses I threw out were just based on my own um, experiences and knowledge of the world. Anyone could have thrown out a different hypothesis. Although we do it effortlessly, when we abduce a new hypothesis, we literally bring to bear our entire life's experiences. And when I say entire life's experiences, that also includes all of our personality 
and everything else that makes us who we are. So as a side note, I think of deducing new ideas from the unexpected as opposed to deducing answers from questions or inducing patterns from examples is perhaps now one of the most distinguishing features of human thought at this juncture in history. And as an example, if you look at automated systems like self-serve checkouts or automated production lines, all the human jobs are dealing with the exceptions and anomalies. And when something goes wrong, we humans are able to fluidly shift between deductive, inductive, and abductive modes of thinking to solve the problem. And advanced artificial intelligences like self-driving cars and poker playing programs, on the other hand, can only shift between two out of those three things. They're just shifting between deduction and induction in a, in a coordinated um, manner, which is impressive, but it's not the same how um, uh, human intelligence works with that, cert, that third piece of abduction. So getting back to the scientific method and what Charles Sanders Pierce was um, also saying when he described the method was that it wasn't, on, it wasn't the only way to do science but rather he felt it was the most efficient way of doing science. And this is, what he, this is why he'd refer to the scientific method as, quote, the economy of research. And so Pierce's description of the scientific method involving this, this cycle of abduction, deduction, and induction is, is still to this day how we think about science. So how does this compare to the development of science in India and China? Well, first off, as I alluded to earlier, the most important aspect of science is the abduction, uh, whereas deduction more, is more about efficiency. And in that regard, we can see that the Vedic sages, um, first of all, they were con- conscious of abduction as a mode of inference. And one pass- passage in the Naya Sutras writes that, quote, it can be inferred from the sight of a swollen river that it has rained upstream, end quote. So, so that definitely there was conscious thinking in India about um, abduction. And, of course, they abduced many great inventions. So um, some of the um, most enduring inventions include, uh, well, I'd say the most impressive thing for me is they built the first master plan city nearly 5,000 years ago, which uh, in itself included a whole suite of inventions. And this city is called, uh, or was called Mohenjo-Daro, and it, it's in the, um, the Indus Valley, which is in present-day Pakistan. And they had the earliest gridiron street system, like, you know, that, um, you know, that grid system we see all over North America and Manhattan, and um, it's the easiest way to get around town. They also had a, which is probably more, even more impressive, um, a full-blown sewage and plumbing system which predated the Roman aqueduct system by nearly 2,000 years. That's correct. There was a city that existed in 2500 BCE that had indoor plumbing with squatting toilets. Um, India was also the earliest country to plow fields. Um, they were uh, they invented stirrups. Uh, if you've ever ridden a horse and riding without stirrups, that's not fun. Um, so thank the Indians for that. Cotton cultivation, um, first to cultivate cotton also, uh, created indigo dye. They invented the spinning wheel, uh, buttons, the game of chess, of course, one of the greatest games of all time, 
and then they also invented a superior form of steel. Initially, this was called crucible steel, and then it was later refined into what's called wood steel. But basically, the recipe of, of Indian steel was far superior to the European method. And they could even pr- produce um, uh, a, a, essentially a rust-proof form of iron. And if you go to uh, Delhi in India, you can you can visit a place called the Iron Pillar of Delhi. And there is an iron pillar that has been standing there for over 1,500 years, and it has not um, corroded at all. It's entirely rust-proof. Now, it's really, though, China that's known for, for – um, that is more known, I'd say, for inventions – and, and, you know, just to give you a case in point, the 17th century um, English philosopher, English Bacon, who we were just talking about, he actually once remarked that the most important inventions of all time, in his view, were the printing press, the compass, and the gunpowder. And all of these things were invented in China long before they were discovered or reinvented in Europe. And, and Francis Bacon, by the way, didn't even know that. So here's a list, a short list of some of the things that were invented in uh, China. So as I've just mentioned, there was gunpowder, compass, printing press. There's also a fourth invention, which is often held up as one of the biggest, most important inventions of, of uh, the history of humankind. And that is, of course, paper. Um, so paper was invented in China. That would have been around 100 CE. Uh, silk was invented in China, of course. Porcelain, you know, we talk about, you know, fine bone China. Uh, tea, I mean, those those are the three big exports, silk, porcelain, and, and tea. Uh, matches were invented in China. Kites, um, you know, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen those, those wonderful Chinese uh, kites before. Um, parachutes uh, were invented in, in China. Row farming, you know, the idea of uh, a sort of more efficient agriculture, essentially. Crossbow um, invented noodles and then playing cards. And of course, up there with chess as one of the greatest, um, I guess, maybe not a game, but a, a sort of a, a meta game, if you will. Now, where you can uh, clearly see the difference between European and Chinese science is after the scientific revolution kicked in. And we can see the European scientists spent a lot more time on physics and astronomy and chemistry mainly because those disciplines were more aligned to mathematics and hence lent themselves to the efficiencies that Charles Sanders Peirce best described by being able to deduce predictions and then test those predictions. So that was really what it was that, you know, ironically, even though guys like Bacon were were saying it's all about induction, science is all about induction, which is true, it, it was really being powered through deduction. So, and essentially what it meant was the Europeans had this kind of tried and true formula for finding new insights that would guide them and still guide science forward to this day. And this also helps us explain why biology and medicine uh, lagged for so long, because until um, Darwin's theory of evolution and, um, you know, there was also uh, uh, Pasteur's germ theory, uh, there wasn't really... Before the, before these basic these 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 theories came out, there was nothing to guide scientists' predictions, and so biology essentially sat out from the scientific revolution until the end of the nineteenth century, um, really until Origin of the Species was published. Now, of course, today the scientific method is everywhere, and the only thing that distinguishes countries from one another are really just their funding, their talent, and rules and regulation because. Um, 
the entire world is essentially a Western culture now. Um, but there's one last and very important point I want to make here with respect to the axiomatic method and the scientific method. Now, while it may seem that when it comes to the scientific revolution, that math was powering this dynamic and is more foundational way, um, the opposite is sort of true. Um, the, now, I want to give you this quote from mathematics from the 20th century. Um, this quote about mathematics, I should say, from the 20th century Hungarian-American mathematician John von Neumann. And he really speaks to this point best. And he says, quote, I think that it is a relatively good approximation to, to truth, which is much too complicated to allow anything but approximations, that mathematical ideas originate in empirics. But once they are conceived, the subject begins to live a peculiar life of its own and is governed almost by entirely aesthetical motivations. In other words, at a great distance from its empirical source, or after much abstract inbreeding, a mathematical subject is in danger of degeneration. Whenever this stage is reached, the only remedy seems to me to be the rejuvenating return to the source, the reinjection of more or less directly empirical ideas. End quote. So that's why studying things like dark matter and dark energy and building things like the Large Hadron Collider are so important. They don't just advance science, they also advance mathematics, which through the power of axiomatic deduction in turn has a huge force multiplier effect back on science, and so the cycle repeats itself. Now I've talked about the scientific method, and before that I talked about the axiomatic method as, as the big ideas that came out of deductive thinking. Now I'm going to show you how deductive thinking led to the third but big idea, which is the invention of the computer itself which I would argue is the third most significant invention in the history of human and the history of humankind after the invention of writing and the invention of interest. Now, the programmable computer was independently invented by at least three persons. There's Charles Babbage, John von Neumann, and Conrad Zeus. First, we have Charles Babbage, who in the in the 19th century designed something he called the analytic, analytical engine, but it was never actually built. Um, however, it was, de it was designed, um, with enough detail for his, um, friend, Lady Ada Lovelace, Lovelace to write numerous programs for, which is why she is regarded as the first, uh, programmer and Babbage as regarded as the first inventor of the computer. Then we come to the great mathematician, John von Neumann, and all modern computers can be traced back to von Neumann's architecture. However, in this regard, von Neumann was mainly building on the work of other mathematicians and engineers, such as Charles Sanders Peirce, and that was the same person I mentioned earlier, uh, Akira Nakashima, Alan Turing, and Claude Shannon. And so he created this, uh, von Neumann basically building on those inventions created this so-called bus architecture, which is what we see in everyday computers uh, today. Now, the third inventor of the computer is the German engineer Konrad Zuse, who during World War II built the first functioning programmable computer, which was called the Z3. But, but due to a combination of historical circumstances 
and the fact that von Neumann's architecture was based directly off of the work of Turing, Nakashima, and Shannon, and therefore had sound mathematical foundation. And you will find that von Neumann and Turing in particular are generally regarded as the prime architects of the modern computer. That said, piecing together the history of the computer can be a bit confusing. Uh, but no matter how you look at it, all roads lead back to logic gates, which, of course, based on deductive analytical logic. So just to kind of recap what I just told you about, you know, uh, von Neumann versus Zeus and Babbage, just to be clear, Babbage invented the very first computer, um, but it was just a design. He never built anything. It was called the anal- analytical engine. And that's not to be confused with the other one that he half built called the uh, difference engine. So the analytical engine was designed but never built. Um, Conrad Zeus built the first computer. So in some regards, he can get that credit for having built the first computer. But it was because it was during World War II and he was on the Nazi side and he was not part of uh, and didn't really base it on any sort of theory. We don't really trace anything back to that design. We only retroactively recognize it as the first one. What we trace everything back to is von Neumann's design. But von Neumann, by all measures, was kind of the last person to have invented the computer of those of those three people. Uh, even though we, again, we'll, we'll point to that to von Neumann as the inventor of the computer. So that's why it's very confusing. And I'm sorry to kind of go over that so much. Um, but no matter how you look at it, regardless of which of those stories you pick, all roads lead back to logic gates, which, of course, are based on deductive analytical logic. And just to make my point clear, it was our friend Charles Sanders Pierce who first came up with the idea of a physical logic gate, which in turn was inspired by the works of the English mathematicians Augustus de Morgan and George Boole. Now, what's interesting to note here is that although both mathematicians were working mainly in a Western tradition, both were heavily influenced by Indian logic and mathematics. And in the case of De Morgan, he was actually born in India and was a big promoter of the Indian mathematician Ram Shundran. Um, and he was he was aware he was also very aware of Indian logic. Uh, George Boole, on the other hand, was the nephew and son of George Everest, who's best known t- today for Mount Everest being named after him. But when he was alive, George Everest was distinguished as the Surveyor General of India, which made him in charge of mapping out the entire country. And during this time, he discovered Indian logic and passed it on to George Boole. And George Boole claims it was a major inspiration behind his thinking. Now, it's a fun idea to think what would have happened if the computer had been developed under the Indian tradition of um, logic as opposed to the Western tradition. I mean, yeah, who knows? Maybe we, you know, the internet would be more like Wikipedia and less like Amazon.com. But I don't think that would really be possible. And it's a fun thought, but I don't think it's possible. And here's why. As I've already said before, the Indian syllogism is substantive and requires us to have an understanding of the world whereas the Western syllogism relies only on the words that are written down. But if you think about it, that's really how computers work. And to put it in philosophical terms, computers hold an invariantist philosophy. That means that computers believe that all words and terms have only one meaning regardless of context. Hence, they are invariant. It does not vary. Humans, on the other hand, are contextualists. And that means we interpret everything within a given context. 
It's a it's a bit like the difference between um, if you if you've ever used an IVR system, like you've called into like IVR stands for intelligent voice recognition. And if you called into one of those call centers, like at a bank or a telecom, and you deal with those voice menus, compare that to a chatbot, um, and you can see the difference. So if if you ever call into the IVR system and you're trying to, for example, for example, there, you know, there's a problem with your home internet service, you will go through these these voice menus, and they call it like a like what do they call it a, a call center tree or a call tree, and you you choose different options to get to different people, and you of course never get to a person. It's just a big waste of time. Um, but if you, on the other hand, use something like a chatbot, like like um, Apple Siri or Amazon Alexa, um, th- those are context aware, and you know you can actually have a conversation with them, and you're not kind of going through these these menus, and you can even sort of break off and talk about the weather and other things like that as well. And that's because those systems, unlike the EV, the IVR system, which is built on deductive logic, the chatbots are built on a combination of deductive and inductive uh, machine learning. So that's why they can they can do that. But that's a very, very new thing. That is not a natural thing for computers to do. The IVR system is a very um, uh, natural thing for a computer to do. But for most of history, Western philosophy had embraced that more rigid and variantist view uh, and it's actually only recently that we've kind of come around to embracing this contextless view that the Vedic sages, if you recall, they understood all along. Now, I want to attention. Um, I want to turn our attention to the modern Western philosophy, starting in the 17th century, with the French philosopher who's often regarded as the first modern philosopher, and that is none other than Rene Descartes. And the reason is that I want to show you just how far down the rabbit hole that modern philosophers, modern Western philosophers went before they realized that there was nowhere else to go and the whole enterprise of logic was built on um, essentially nothing more than human imagination.